You are listening to the cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France. Today we're in Combleu. Where are we, Lizzie? Well, we are in Passy. We are in the shadow of the Flen Mountains. Flen on one side, Saint-Gervais and Mont Blanc on the other. Beautiful day. Beautiful, very hot day for a time trial down here in the valley. That's Lizzie Banks of EF Education Tibco SVB. You can see me closing my eyes to remember the sponsors of your team, Lizzie. You're fresh from the Giro Donna and you are here for just today. This is your last day on the cycling podcast at the Tour de France. How have you found it? I've really loved it, actually. It was really interesting comparing uh, this experience to my experience in Denmark last year, where I found the tour to be just an overwhelmingly huge organisation. And it's interesting here because the size of the towns in the Alps and, you know, all of the mountains pressing in on you sort of condense the tour a little bit and almost make it a little bit smaller. But then when you're on the side of the road, the presence of the fans is just so huge. And I think it's really overwhelming to me quite how many people come out onto the road to experience what is often just two seconds of riders flashing past but the adrenaline and the spirit of the crowd and the feeling that you get when the riders come past is really like no other sporting event I've ever been to. It's the greatest free sporting event in the world isn't it? It doesn't cost anything to stand by the roadside although some people are agitating to charge spectators to stand on the mountains. I think Richard Pluger of Jumbo Visma made that case perhaps to reduce the size of the crowds on the big passes the it has been a bit of an issue here, and of course their rider Sepp Kuss got knocked off by a spectator a few days ago. We're here for the time trial. The spectators get much more bang for their not buck today, don't they? Because they see all 157 riders go past at initially one-minute intervals and then two-minute intervals. They've got 22 and a half kilometres there or thereabouts ahead of them, and well. If you don't know already, my name's Lionel Burney. This is a cycling podcast, and we are joined for the first time at the Tour de France by journalist Richard Abraham, a big cycling podcast. Welcome, Richard. Thank you, Lionel. Good to be here. What have you been up to this morning? We are at the start. All of the team buses are parked in a long line behind us. I, walking past, I had that feeling you sometimes have when you go to the beach and you see a family that's much better prepared than you. They've got the big gazebo and the cool box and everything. And uh, you're there just with a little towel and you haven't got a sun umbrella or anything. Who's winning the gazebos? I think Ineos. Have... Oh, I'm not sure, actually, because I saw as I was walking past, it was an hour and a half before the start still, Yumbo were actually watering the top of their tent with with the jet wash to keep it cool. Wow, that's the sort of marginal gains we've come to expect <laughs> from cycling. But Richard, you've been wandering around at the team buses. Let's not spoiler too much what you've been doing. But what are your first impressions? First time back on the tour since since 2016, actually. So quite a while. Um, it's it's funny the race has changed in that it is much bigger. You can sense that, but it also doesn't change at all. There's an enormous kind of continuity. It's like. It's like being back at school again after the long summer holiday, a seven-year summer holiday. Um, a lot of the same faces. And if they were riders seven years ago, now that a lot of them are sports directors or working for the organisation or the UCI. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, there's a, you can kind of sense that tradition. In good and bad ways, it, it's all coming back to me, this standing on hot tarmac, having diesel fumes pumped into my face. And, uh, that, is our, that is our tour experience, isn't it? Um, I'm tr- this is your eighth tour, is that right? Seventh. Seventh tour. The last one was seven years ago. You must have started as a child. You're, you can only be about 31. I did uh, a little bit, a little bit more than that. I did get asked a few times uh, when you, you ask a question and then maybe a few questions in. Someone says, how, how old are you? And then you sort of, uh, not sure. Actually, I was just wondering the same thing. How old are you? Well, that would be telling, wouldn't it? <laughs> oh, here we go. out of me over the next few days. Here we go. We'll have a T-shirt eventually which says, how old is Richard Abraham? We won't just be doing predictions about what's going to happen in the time trial. We're doing predictions about the age of Richard. Yeah, I've been a sweepstake on it. And, uh, yeah. Well, I'll go with an opening gambit of 31, but uh, I could, could be out. Anyway, uh, we're going to record little bits and pieces as the stage unfolds. The riders are underway, aren't they, already? Interestingly today, given how short the stage is, three time checks, which may or may not be a factor when it comes down to a race of seconds. What do you reckon, Lizzie? Yeah, I mean, there's a time check at the top of the first climb. Uh, then there's a time check of the, at the bottom of the, the main climb, the Cote de Demancy, And then at the top of there, before they 
hit the main road back into Combleu where it sort of flattens out. It's still going up, but you can really get a, a good speed going there. And I don't think we'll be able to take that much from it because riders will pace it in different ways. So, you know, I think really we'll just be waiting for the time check at the finish. But it is all kind of contributing to that sense of drama, isn't it? Especially when first and second on GC are split by only 10 seconds. It's going to be a huge week on the Tour de France. Our sense is that it won't get decisively done today. You never know. It might do. Somebody might have a bad day out of the two. Jonas Vingegaard in the yellow jersey and today Pogacar are very close behind. I wanted to take the temperature of our Danish friend. I'm not literally, not literally taking his temperature. That would be weird. But I wanted to get a sense of how the race is being seen amongst the Danish media, the Danish band. So... I dialed up our very good friend, the Baron, Il Baroni, Brian Nygaard, who is working for Danish TV and for a Danish newspaper. And I called him up this morning before I left our hotel. Let's check in with Il Baroni, Brian Nygaard. Hello, Brian. How are you doing? Good morning, Lionel. I'm doing Quite well, I would say. Yeah, I'm doing well. And uh, and how about you? How how's the tour? Very good, Brian. Yeah, very good. Uh, feel rested after the rest day, which is not always the case, is it, on the Tour de France? Sometimes you're. I think ten thousand people up. would disagree with you. Yeah. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. But no, I I just wonder what it would have been like for Jonas Vingegaard and Tadej Pogacar yesterday, because this tour has been so finely poised. They have a day off ahead of the time trial, which is, we all know, the race of truth. Surely the time trial is going to split them, or is it? And they've had a lot of time to think about it, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's the irony that they have to ride against themselves, I suppose, to find the difference in, in one another. But that's that's where we are. I mean, there's still, obviously, as you know, a lot of racing after the time trial, but I'm looking forward to it specifically to see how they how they match up against each other because there there will be a difference today I'm, I'm 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 i've said that before but i'm certain today well i was looking back at recent time trial results between the pair i think it's probably only fair really to compare like with like isn't it it's all very well looking at you know time trials in uh, itzulia the stage race in the basque country but that's not the same level it's not the same intensity as the tour de france but if you look at 2021 that stage in Laval where Pogacar really put the seal on the tour, he won the time trial, beat Vingegaard by 27 seconds. But then at the end of the race on the penultimate day at saint Emilion, it kind of swung round. Vingegaard was third on the stage and Pogacar was 25 seconds behind him. So over the two uh, time trials in 2021, they were pretty evenly matched. But the one that's really interesting to me is last year in Copenhagen, Pogacar beat Vingegaard by eight seconds. And then in Rocamador, Vingegaard beat Pogacar by eight seconds. So there isn't a lot of evidence to suggest that the door is going to open. So why do you think one may make the difference over the other today? I mean, it's almost like they only got separated at birth, isn't it? Like, yeah. yeah, this tour has been this tour has been really strange, but also very intriguing for it. It's not that the, the it's not obviously the longest climb that you'd seen in a in a time trial, but Cote de Mancy is is a very tough climb when you do two and a half kilometers at nine point four, and it's, it's not that the climb and the length as as such. I think it's. It'll be a, a very deep measurement of the fatigue level and how they've obviously administered their, their powers on, on, the, on the time trial as a whole. I mean, I'm not talking about huge differences, but I'm thinking there could be a potential difference that will swing in either way as to whether Pogacar can take over the jersey or um, Vingegaard can, can keep it, um, potentially adding the same amount of time into Pogacar that he has already. I, I don't see them. I mean, Vingegaard has a huge advantage starting last and he has all the time references, etc. But I'm not sure that's going to make him go faster on the climb than he would normally. What have you made of Vingegaard over the last few days? I mean, he was kind of on a bit of a losing streak, wasn't he? Until the Col de Juplin and the, the motorbikes getting in the way and it felt like momentum was shifting back a little bit. And then on Sunday, you know, he, he reacted much more smartly when Pogacar made uh, his move and really closed the door immediately and rode, I thought, very comfortably. Yeah, I think the I think it's it's shifted also in in into his direction the this sort of huge 
showdown because it's almost like he's cracked the code of of Pogacar's attacks. And the further Pogacar has to wait until the finish line, the more uh, Vingegaard clearly feels in control because the 10 seconds that we see now, they, they don't really reflect what's been happening in the race. If you'd only if you're only reading the results, you could you you'd think you'd been watching the most boring bike race in the world <laughs> because it's a, it's a standstill, right? But but it's everything it's it's the exact opposite. But I think that Vingegaard has somehow found a way to maybe not read uh, Pogacar's mind, but he he knows what Pogacar is comfortable uh, able uh, to do, and he's comfortable with it. I'm not saying that they're morphing into each other, but they're starting to have. Sp- some similarities in the way they race because Pogacar's attacks are a lot more controlled now. Not not when he does his acceleration because that's beyond control, but it's almost like he has to be precise as almost as a surgeon when he tries to to put pressure on Vingegaard. Also, he, he he's gonna be in a in a position where he could lose time himself. So I think Vingegaard has sort of like his his acceleration is a lot better than I've seen it ever in a Grand Tour. And adding those two elements together puts Vingegaard in a, in a, in a fantastic position. I, I agree, it's turning towards Vingegaard at this point a little bit. Yeah, David Walsh actually made a point when we were having lunch in the press room on Sunday that, you know, they've kind of thrown everything at each other. A bit like heavyweight boxers, they'd reached a point where actually they couldn't throw another punch. They had to kind of almost lean on each other to hold each other up. And of course, <laughs> yeah. in the time the trial, line too. yeah, indeed, yeah. And, and of course, in the time trial, there's nobody to support. There's nobody to sort of ride against. There's nobody to sort of feed off. It's just man against the road. And I suppose this is where it becomes a mental test as much as a physical one today. For sure, because on the on the road stages they've been able to absorb uh, the other punches that the teams have given them and how they've diminished their own their own help. But today it's it's uh, it's just a question of I mean it's not a no one is, has recuperated completely at this point in the race. On the contrary, so I think today will be a very clear measurement of what exactly they have left in the tank. Do you but, think and this... they're both quite experienced at doing these things. Mm. You know they know how to they know how to ride a great time trial at the end of a Grand Tour. They do, but I don't know. I, I'm kind of leaning towards Vingegaard because, you know, his personality is so controlled. You know, he's almost unknowable, as we talked about uh, before. But, you know, this sort of self-discipline he seems to have uh, may well be the kind of thing that becomes a difference today. Whereas Pogacar, a little bit more of an emotional racer, you know, he, he relishes the... Um, throwing down the gauntlet doesn't he he's got to slightly tweak the way he rides i know he's an excellent time trialist we you know the stage in laval a couple of years ago was you know really his kind of uh, blossoming in a, as a world-class time trialist but i don't know I, in a race of seconds i can feel the pendulum just going towards the danish jury at the moment yeah yeah i've, I've, hip, I've been hearing that a lot actually and but it's so it's been so unpredictable when someone has had a small advantage on the other even if it finishes very close and even if it's within you know a handful of seconds between them and i'm not sure that a, a mental advantage going into tomorrow and going into saturday that's not gonna that's not gonna do it for him <laughs> you know he'll, he'll have to be he'll have to be a str- he'll have to be stronger than even the extra added five ten seconds that he that he takes out of pogaccia today because it's a completely i mean the, the hardest climb of the race is tomorrow and all those things. I just, I, I think it'll, it'll give you sort of the serving right or the, you know, the, you'll wear the jersey, which means that you'll have to, and which is a great position to be in for Vingegaard because Pogacar is forced to attack. And Vingegaard is, re, is just as good as defending as Pogacar is in attacking at this point. So it'll all, if it stays quite the same today, and, and there's not going to be huge differences, it, it is going to be a question of who, who is the stronger rider on on Col de la Loz tomorrow and, and, and or else who's going to be able to put in a late attack on Saturday. So it'll be, a, you know, it'll, it'll set a marker for who's going to have to attack and who's going to have to defend. But I, I, I sort of feel that we even know that already. And with your theory that Vingegaard's uh, uh, going to come out on top, it's, it's not going to change the roles. You know, Vingegaard's not going to wake up tomorrow and, and 
he's not going to have to rearrange his tactical news for the last remaining tough days. To be honest, Brian, if we had this conversation again in 10 minutes' time, I would make an equal strong case for Pogacar winning. I really can't split them. <laughs> but but yeah. what's, yeah. Well, you've, you've got your finger on the pulse with the Danish media, Danish public opinion. Just lastly, if you had to give a score out of 10, the confidence-ometer of uh, the Danish sporting public in a Vingegaard win, what do you reckon? Eight out of ten, eight and a half? No, no, it's it's certainly not that high. It, it isn't. It, I would say it's probably <clears throat> even if you take away the you know the the preference and the you know how how the Danish cycling fans admire Vingegaard, I think there's also a sense of realism and knowing that he's up against one of the best riders in the history of cycling. So I don't think anyone would really give it more than six and a half out of ten at, at this point. You know, it's. Uh, it's it's really that close, you know, and we've seen, you know, we we haven't seen Vingegaard crack at the end of a Grand Tour, but this is only his third Tour de France. So there's also, you know, he, he definitely gets better for every, every one of them that he does. <clears throat> but I don't think it's enough to make a convincing case for him to be able to resist Pogaccia if he just has a just a small fracture of a weakness in one of the last two hard days well i tell you what brian at the end of the episode tonight once we know the result once we've seen the performances i'll speak on behalf of the danish public and come up with a score out of 10 (laughs) see where we stand tonight (laughs) (laughs) i'll make sure to pass it on (laughs) (laughs) thanks a lot brian i'll check in again before paris absolute pleasure thank you very much lennon Lizzie Banks settling into the Tour de France in all manner of capacities, currently just uh, helping the Jayco Alula car reverse without hitting the barriers. I mean, you could work at the Tour in almost any capacity, Lizzie. But you know, I'm going to be told, well, they just have a camera in the back, because the other day I was in the back of our bus and I was shouting up to the front, OK, keep going, keep going, stop. And then the riders said to me, you realise he's got a camera, you idiot. So, um, yeah, I don't think they needed me, even though I wanted to help. Oh, well, sticking with uh, mistakes, I've got a small corrections corner here. Had chance on the rest day to check the Cycling Podcast emails. Thank you to everyone. I mean, almost, I would say 90% of our listeners pointed this one out. I said the other day that Michal Kwiatkowski and Richard Carapaz sprinted it out in La roche sur foron in 2020 when the two riders from Ineos came to the start, came to the finish line together. They, of course, didn't really sprint it out, did they? They did an Eno and Le Monde and kind of it was all smiles and slaps on the back and arms around the shoulders. Uh, but Kwiatkowski won the stage. My defence is that it was very hot that day. It was very hot the day I made this mistake. The sun's obviously getting to my head. And David Dukler points out that Wout Poles actually does technically have a Grand Tour stage win to his name. Because in the yes. 2011 Vuelta a España, he was second behind... Juan Jose Cobo on the Anglerou stage. Cobo was later stripped of the win for a doping offence, so that had slipped my mind. But it's his, it's his first first across the line. His first first across the line, and of course his first Tour de France stage win. Now, this course goes on some of the route that the 2016 time trial won by Chris Froome ahead of Tom de Moulin covered in the Tour de France, but it's also very well known for being the site of one of the most extraordinary men's world road race championship in history in 1980 Salonche was the base for the world title race and they went over the Côte de Domancy the same way the time trial is going over it so with that kind of 9% wall 20 times in a 268 kilometer race and well I'm already spoiling Francois's French flavour Now for some French flavour would be well, guys, I don't have to tell you how hard the uh, Domancy climb is because you've you've had 160 something uh, opportunities to find out today in the time trial. Uh, the Domancy climb is, you know, that Christian Prudhomme is uh, keen about uh, cycling history, and it's um, the Domancy climb became famous in 1980. But it was the main climb, the main bump uh, in the Road World Championships won by Bernardino. And, uh, well, it was even harder then because for the, the 268 case of these uh, Road World Championship, the riders had to climb the Domancy climb 
20 times, you know, 20 times. So obviously it made a, it made a huge difference. I mean, the, the, the problem in the past for Inno is that at the time, the road world championship courses were usually flat or reasonably flat and uh, sprinters had a better chance to be world champions than uh, all-rounders like Inno. That day, he really never let, you know, anybody uh, think twice. I mean, the, the race was really a formality for the Badger. He attacked with 150 Ks to go and scorched all his opponents until the last one who was uh, Italian Gian Battista Baronchelli. The domestic climb has been used since, uh, well, especially in uh, 2016 during an in, uh, another individual time trial between Salange and Megève, won by Chris Froome. And was also used in 2021 during the Cluse teen stage. Uh, and Pierre Latour was leading the bunch at the top of it. It was also on the same roads, but ridden downwards, that Roman Bardet attacked with teammate Michael Chirel to break away from the group of favorites in the finale of the stage he won in Saint-Gervais in the 2016 Tour de France. And finally, the Domancy climb was also part of the final stage of the 2020 Criterium du Dauphiné, which saw Sepp Kuss win and Danny Martinez take the leader's jersey from Primoz Roglic. Well, you know as much as I do about the Domancy climb. Well, I mentioned Bernardino there, and as if by magic, we turned around and there was the man himself. Retired now, but still an occasional ambassador for ASO. I mean, when I say retired, I mean retired yes. from being an ambassador of ASO. He was previously the, the badger of the podium, wasn't he? Can you remember the time he pushed some protesters off the podium at the Tour de France? I can't remember what year that was. Couldn't tell you what year that was, but yeah, he was sort of... ASO managed to have a very docile badger didn't they on the podium but then there was just it was there under the surface waiting for miscreant protesters or pugnacious pugnacious Bernard you know of course the last Frenchman to win the Tour de France way back in 1985 five-time winner and yeah this is his uh, the scene of his fantastic 1980 world title win now we're going to break the habit of I was going to say a lifetime, but the cycling podcast has been around for a decade. Break the habit of a decade and indulge in a bit of speculation because we're about to head off to the finish of the time trial and watch as the riders come in. It's beautifully balanced between Jonas Vingegaard and Tadej Pogacar, but let's get off the fence and predict what's going to happen. I'll be very unfair and come to you first, Lizzie. Who's going to win the stage? And if it's not one of the big two, who wins that battle and what will the time gap between the two be? Well I was actually trying to get some intel from you Lionel because I was trying to find out which is the most technically savvy of the two riders or technically adept of the two riders because I think they are both so well matched on the climbs that I think those times will be very very even but there's an incredibly fast descent and it could be that even the seconds are won or lost there but I'm going to say Jonas Vingegaard because I think he was looking fresher um, on the last stage into, into San Gervais and I think he's coming around I think he's riding into this tour um, and Pog seemed to be pretty going from the gun from the beginning so money's on him so Vingegaard to beat Pogacar by how many seconds or minutes? Oh, um, I'm going to say six seconds. Wow, wow. And will he win the stage? Yes. OK, Richard, what about you? I, I was quite liking it on the fence. It was comfortable there and I didn't have to, uh, didn't have to choose. I, I think whoever wins today, it's going to be quite a narrow margin. I don't think there's going to be um, a tall winning margin by the end of today. Looking at the sky right now, I can see some fairly threatening clouds bubbling up down there. Um, Mikkel Björg is off quite early for UAE. Um, he won his, his stage in the Dauphiné. Um, so I think if it does rain and that knocks some time out of the late starters, then someone like him could actually do, do a ride that would threaten the, the stage win. Um, depending on how much he's recovered from, from his efforts supporting Pogaccio over the rest day, like, he'd be my outside bet. Climbs too long for him. Climbs too long for him. That's my call. Well, what about the time gap then between Vingegaard and Pogacar? Less than 10 seconds. In whose favour? Hopeless predictioning here. Hopeless predictioning. You've got to get off the fence. You've got splinters in your backside. Okay, Vingegaard. Okay, Okay, I'm going to go the other way. I'm going to say that Pogacar will beat Vingegaard, but by six seconds... Oh, that's my margin. But the other, but the other way, way so round, yeah. Of 12. And I think Wout van Aert will win the stage. There. 
we can come back at the end of the episode and just laugh at how wrong we got it all. Stay tuned, listeners. The Cycling Podcast is very proud to be supported by MAP, the Melbourne-based clothing company. But it's an international company now, and we've been hearing from Jared Smith, one of the co-founders, co-CEO, about MAP's Melbourne roots. I think growing up in Melbourne, the, the culture here is we've got a very big um, cafe, coffee scene, also a really amazing restaurant scene and wine, like we're, we're big wine drinkers. So all those sorts of things <laughs> stimulate within cycling that, yeah, we love coffee and we love um, wine as cyclists. So having, you know, a great spot to finish a ride and have a, have a, a coffee, it's awesome to have that culture Having a very big social scene in Melbourne, I think Melburnians love to socialise. They have amazing sports um, events like the the Formula One, the Australian Open tennis. Melburnians really love to get out and witness sports and enjoy sports. So even though it's a colder sort of climate, um, it's very social and um, coming together as a community. So all those sorts of aspects of Melbourne rub off on cycling in general and also have helped influence MAP, I suppose, come about because it's an outdoor brand rooted in cycling and also having that fashion sense in Melbourne. We've got a lot of brands based here, Australian brands that started in Melbourne and not far away in Torquay as well, like Quicksilver and Rip Curl and Globe. They're all streetwear surf brands that are sort of rooted in Melbourne also. You combine all those things together and it sort of makes sense why MAP came out of Melbourne. Check out the full range of map clothing. You can get kitted out for on and off the bike. You can, of course, get the Cycling Podcast jersey and accessories as well at map.cc. More from Jared Smith tomorrow. I just wondered if you could tell me a little bit about what that course was like to ride. It looks like the sort of thing that was maybe harder in reality than it looked on paper, perhaps. Ah, it was uh, it was really really tough, Uh, especially the last part up, the last 4k up when you come out on the big road from the from the steep section. It's still five, six percent uphill, and with the heat and the humidity we have here today, it just feels endless. And uh, you still have to keep pushing because otherwise you lose quickly a lot of time. But uh, after you just went deep on the steep part, it's it's yeah, it's horrible. But uh, I think it uh, it it will make for a good uh, good fight between the GC guys later. You opted not to change your bike. You rode on the TT bike the whole way. Can you just tell me a bit about that decision? Because it looks like some riders maybe did make the change or are thinking about it. Yeah, we we did some uh, calculations, simulations on it. And uh, from what we could uh, calculate, it was in the region of uh, three, four seconds you could save by changing the bike. But you couldn't, you can't really do a bike change in three, four seconds. So... Uh, I, for me, uh, if you ask me, I think uh, the guys who are going to go for an overall uh, good time, they're going to stay on the TT bikes. The guys who uh, want to get through uh, easier and maybe not spend, uh, maybe don't spend so much time on their TT bikes, they'll probably change to have a bit, a bit easier on the climb to push uh, some decent power. And then, of course, also the guys to go for the KOM points, they're also going to go on the road bikes. But I think you are going to see all the ones going for for the stage at the GC, they're going to stay on the TT bikes. That was Kasper Askreen of Sudal Quickstep, who finished a very respectable 15th, three minutes 41 behind the winner. I mean, everyone rode a very respectable time trial today, but the story of the day is, well, the question of the day is, is the Tour de France done? Because Jonas Vingegaard has won the time trial. He has put one minute and 38 seconds into Tadej Pogacar, an absolutely dominant performance in the time trial. I'll I'll just run through the time checks. He was 16 seconds up at the first check, 31 seconds up at the second check. Pogacar then swapped to the road bike. 
before the climb and then at the third check he was 105 up and then at the finish 138 absolutely dominant with the Col de la Loge tomorrow and the stage to Lamarckstein on Saturday it looks unlikely that Pogacar can get back into the overall race has Jonas Vingegaard won the Tour de France Lizzie Banks what does it look like tonight well, I think that we shouldn't say yes because this is the Tour de France and we never know what's going to happen. But I think that he can be really confident in where he's at now. I think looking at the trajectory of Pogaccia and, and Vingegaard, Vingegaard is getting better and better. You know, we saw that already on Sunday uh, at the stage finish at San Gervais. Pogaccia just couldn't shake him and Pogaccia was beginning to get a bit tired and we really saw that today. What we saw was... Vingegaard was fighting so hard. He came out, he was punching through every single corner. He really, really wanted this and he had the energy to go for it. Pogaccia just didn't have that. He looked a bit lacklustre. He doesn't look like his, he didn't look like his normal punchy self today. And, you know, we saw one rider have a great day and one rider have a not so good day. And that ended up in a, a minute and a half gap on the line. And 148 overall now. I mean, I'll just run through the kind of basics of the day because actually it was quite a straightforward day uh, in terms of both the stage result and the GC battle. The first serious leader was Remy Cavagna, the French time trial champion. He set the best time and then sat in the hot seat for a long, long while. Two and a half hours, I think it was, he was sat there in the very hot seat. Then Wout van Aert of Jumbo Visma came through and beat that time, but it was close, only 15 seconds quicker than Cavagna. And then all eyes were on the clock counting down to, I think it was 4.58 that today Pogacar rolled down the start ramp and five o'clock Jonas Vingegaard. And well, we knew very early on, didn't we? And we were looking at the, the shape of the riders as they tackled those opening few kilometres. As you say, Lizzie, Vingegaard came out absolutely flying from the blocks, throwing himself around corners. The speeds that were flashing up on the screen were, well, insane, really. And he had Pogacar on the back foot from the start. And, well, as I say, uh, 1 minute 48 is going to take some hauling back. Looks to me impossible. But, like you say, let's not, let's not pull the shutters down on the Tour de France just yet. What else happened today? In the stage, well, Van Aert was third... Really, really respectable performances by some of the other GC riders. Peo Bilbao was fourth, Simon Yates fifth, Adam Yates seventh behind Cavagna, the uh, long-time leader. The thing from the stage result that really interested me was that Pogacar 138 back, Wout van Aert 251 back, and then everyone really closely bunched mm -hmm. together. And in fact, last man over the line, or last man on the result, 156th place, Alexis Renard of Cofidis, only 10.46 back. Now, over 22 and a bit kilometres, that's quite a, a hammering. But I think that puts into perspective the gap between Vingegaard and Pogacar more than it puts into context the gap between Pogacar and everybody else. I mean, the other riders in the race today didn't really have a, a choice but to go pretty hard because the Tour de France time cut is tight and if you know that it's a predominantly uphill time trial and you've got Pogaccio and Vingegaard going for it on the line then you can't really estimate the finishing speeds in the same way that you can in a normal time trial so you have to you have to go harder than usual you can't sandbag it because the risk of not making the time cut is too high. In terms of how that has shuffled around a little bit of the GC, Adam Yates has actually jumped above Carlos Rodriguez into third place overall. There's only five seconds between Yates and Rodriguez now. And uh, Felix Gall, who is playing kind of yo-yo with the 10th position on GC, he has gone ahead of Guillaume Martin. Otherwise, the rest of the GC stays in the order it was this morning. But I suppose the big question is, uh, did Pogacar make a mistake swapping from the time trial bike to the road bike at the start of the climb? What do you reckon, Richard? Well, Pogacar was asked about this at the finish and he said the reason for that, for the, for the change, was because he was more comfortable on the road bike. I think the consensus was, from most of the riders, that actually in terms of going fast, a time trial bike was quicker. A road bike might save you a little bit of time going up the climb, but the time that it would take to change the bike would negate and, and lose you more time. Um, so I think in hindsight, you have to look back at, at that and think it's, it's potentially the wrong choice. But compared to how much time he lost overall on Jonas Vingegaard today, 
15 seconds or whatever it was for, for the bike change um, wouldn't have drastically altered the outcome of the stage. Well, um, no. I mean, he was well down before the bike change, wasn't he? Exactly. I mean, already conceding time. I thought maybe he'll swap to the road bike, feel more comfortable on the climb and ride the kind of reverse split and, and has paced his effort over the second half of the climb to eat back into that advantage. I thought maybe Vingegaard had gone out too hot and would pay for it on the climb. Completely the opposite, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, I do think the bike change was a bad decision, but Pogaccia's body language was already telling us that this wasn't his day. The other thing with the bike change is once you reach the top of the Cote de Demancy, it's still a couple of kilometres until the line where it's actually very fast, so you're going to continue to lose time there. And when Wout van Aert came across the line at what was the fastest time, he was then putting a lot of time into Remy Cavagna between the top of the Cote de Demancy and the finish line. So you can really see how much you can make up there. But, I mean, like we said, it was... That wasn't the downfall of Pogaccia today. It was simply that he wasn't on a hot day and Vingegaard was on an absolutely scorching hot day. I don't know how he wasn't on a hot day because it's absolutely boiling here. There were a few <laughs> spots of rain, weren't there? And I thought that might make things interesting, but that came to nothing. Uh, a great quote from Wout van Aert at the finish line, though, wasn't there? <laughs> he, he said, uh, well, I think I'm the best of the normal riders. Indeed, indeed. Lizzie, you asked a really interesting question of Vingegaard in the press conference. What was kind of sparking that question? And tell our listeners what it was. Yes, so I asked Vingegaard if he had anything down his skin suit. And I should clarify that's down the back of his skin suit. <laughs> because as he was riding, he has a very marked hump where his thoracic vertebrae are. And we know uh, from modeling that if you put something down the front of your skin suit, it makes you a lot faster. And I wondered if this was the, the same with his bag. So I said, was there anything down there? <laughs> and he said, no, he had an ice pack on his neck, which was basically going to be concealed under his helmet. And he said to me that he thought actually he needed to work on his posture perhaps um, because generally speaking a flat back is faster but that's not necessarily true it's one of those things people say if you don't have the resources to go into the tunnel try to go for a flat back but every position is different for every different person every morphology changes your aerodynamics and i was speaking to kaylee frets actually who told me that a previously unnameable tour de france rider whose name may be similar to leg week but the opposite of that. Ooh, wow. Uh, wow. <laughs> somebody sure somebody, somebody with seven asterisks to his name. Yeah, is that who you're saying? Right. The, the controversial Lance Armstrong. Yes. Let's, let's well, not beat around the bush. Kaylee Fretz was telling me that he also had a very marked markedly hump mm. very markedly hump on his back, humply mm. marked, markedly humped back. And um, he tested this and it was actually incredibly fast. So mm. it may just be that like um, Remco Evenepoel has fast skin. Uh, Jonas Vingegaard has a very, very fast back. I think, although Jonas Vingegaard is quite inscrutable in a press conference, he doesn't really give too much away in his answers. You could almost detect a little bit of tongue-in-cheek in that answer when he was saying, oh, maybe I think I, I need to work on my position a little <laughs> bit. They will have worked on his position so much. If he's riding like that, absolutely, that's because that's the fastest. And, and there's, there is a bit of this sort of dark arts around aerodynamics, isn't there? Because sometimes what looks fast isn't what is fast. Um, and you just wonder to what extent he's sort of like... He's pushing the envelope, isn't he, in terms of the, the position and... Yeah, and I, and I don't think... You can, you can understand why he doesn't come out and say, actually, yeah, humpback is faster. Yeah, but again, I think there was something else from his press conference that indicates just how much the riders want to conceal from everyone, not least their competition, because he was asked about the power he was putting out, mm. and he very markedly talked about the power he wanted to put out on the, the kind of recovery sections or the flatter sections, and he said he wanted to ride at 360 watts, but he actually rode at 380 watts, but he very deliberately didn't say what he was riding at on the climbs, which is kind of the important bit, really, of today's stage. Well, I thought that that was a reeling in itself because the way that he answered it, he almost wasn't sure whether he should go ahead and say his power numbers, but mm. I think because he... And actually, this goes back to something else I've really noticed from being in the press side. You know, normally you only see the TV interviews. Now I'm in the position that we see the press conference interviews as well. And he has a very, very different demeanor in the press conference than he does in the TV interviews that are going to the to the global audience. Um, it's much colder. Um, it's much more closed. But today, because he was happier, because he had that thrill of having just won the victory, he was a little more open in the press conference. And I think that that slight openness actually meant that he did give us his power 
Brown Ambers because I think on a normal day he'd have said no way. I think as well he he uh, he mentioned that he thought his power meter was broken when, whilst he was riding because he was looking down at the numbers and thinking to himself there's no way mm. that's what I'm pushing out so I think we can deduce from that that they were pretty high whatever he was putting out on that climb it was high and and this is often the way that performances are judged unfortunately in a way certainly on, on climbs because you don't have anything to go on more than just the data and you can probably estimate Jonas's weight and if he tells you the power numbers well then you get the watts per kilo and you know there's a lot of uh, that that's essentially used as as a judge of whether what we can see is is legit or not and and, yeah. and you can you can completely understand why he doesn't tell you his power numbers because he's opening up potentially opening up a huge can of worms there by doing that that's that's says nothing about the legitimacy of his his performance it says everything about how that is interpreted by people who consume cycling by the media and by the fans yeah that's a good point actually because we've seen it in the past haven't we when riders have been open about their data that data then gets crunched by mm. uh, by the media by armchair spectators who uh, are, are looking to uh, i guess drive a wedge between you know the, the performance and and its credibility and we already had that in the press conference today we had say, people saying how do you explain this performance how do you explain that seeing as you've been so close over the whole race you haven't you know you've had 10 seconds between you over the the last two weeks how can you explain that there's two minutes difference between you on 22 kilometers um, and I can understand why people say that from the outside but as an athlete you have great days and you have bad days and I really resonate with that oh my gosh is the power meter over reading or is it under reading if you're having a terrible day because we are all human and Fingergore and Pogacar are both human and they both showed that today with both having an exceptional day and having an under par day. I think the thing is that it's the gap between Vingegaard and Pogacar and then the gap between Pogacar and the rest. And the rest are really pretty good bike riders. And, uh, but you know, this was one a climbing course. A climbing course, of course, yeah. I, yeah, I accept that um, completely. I mean, the other thing about uh, Vingegaard was... You know, he was quite coy about other aspects of his performance today. He said that he was never told what the time gaps were from the car, uh, but he knew he was doing well from the numbers on his perhaps malfunctioning well, screen. He also saw, he said that he saw the um, big screens on the course. Yes. So from that he could, I mean, it's pretty good to spot that. You know, going um, flat out on a TT bike in that position with a helmet, but, you know, I guess you can see the green or, or, or not. Um, so he knew he was up and then he also said on the climb he could see Pogacar's team car so he knew that he was close and I mean he was not far off catching him by the line he wasn't and then he broke it down and said that he'd split the course into four parts go hard but not full full at the start so he didn't blow himself up then try and recover on the downhill section and then you know, push hard into the, the uphill and, and I suppose he, he would have known he was up and I'm, I'm imagining I mean I don't want to uh, I'm not an elite athlete, Lizzie, but if you know you're up, that's another little spur, isn't it? He may not have known he was up from the time checks because I do believe him that he said he wanted no time checks because a lot of athletes don't want to hear about other riders and they want to focus on their performance. But like you said, Richard, he said that on the climb he could see that Pogaccia's car wasn't far ahead and when you know that you are putting the hurt onto somebody else, it really gives you that bit of extra motivation. What it, what it reminded me of, actually, that stage a little bit, was in 2020 when Pogacar did the opposite really and won the tour over Roglic on the uh, Planche de Belfi even down to the fact you know just, just the body language and the way, the way they were riding Pogacar was very aggressive that day almost sort of hyperactive and that was what we saw in Vingegaard mm -hmm. how he was on the bike he was twitching he was moving around and he was really like you could just tell he was in the right headspace to completely thrash himself on that stage and actually when you see watching Pogacar go up that climb he took his visor off and you could see his eyes and he looked tired he looked worn out and he, he knew he wasn't on a good day and it's um, you know as much as we talk about Vingegaard's performance and how good that was Pogacar really wasn't on a good one today I don't think The cycling podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport Science and sport fueled by science. 
thank you very much to Science in Sport, our long-term supporters, of course. And they're the world leaders in endurance nutrition. And when Grand Tours are raced on the edge and won by seconds, well, not in this case anymore, it's crucial to get the right fuel at the right time. Fuel, hydrate and recover like the Ineos Grenadiers at scienceinsport.com. Uh, we'll probably talk about the Ineos Grenadiers in a little bit, but a few more little bits of business from today's time trial. Matteo Jorgensen of Movistar, a non-starter in the time trial today. He crashed on Sunday and had a scan, and it's revealed that he's torn his right hamstring. And he says from experience of a previous crash in Paris-Nice, he knows that if he rides on with that, it will just make it worse. So he has decided to go home. And Richard, sorry, but uh, Mikhail... Björg of UAE Team Emirates, who was your tip to win the stage today, was caught very, very early on by Peter Sagan he and had finished 87th. Just <sighs> six minutes 36 off the win today. Yeah. Do, you, do you want to revise your prediction now? <laughs> can, can I do that? Can we scrub it from the, uh, from the podcast earlier? Can we earlier? continue with the other predictions? Uh, yeah, I, I, I was going to say... Would win, uh, hopeless. Th- that was the thing, though. We came away from that conversation. It got a bit competitive, didn't it? Because you, Lizzie, were not happy that Richard had not really I, pinned I re- kale yeah. on the door with an absolute uh, time gap. Richard had said that he thought that Vingegaard would win by less than 10 seconds. And I said that that wasn't fair because if it was five, then you know, that's a range of 11 seconds. And yep. so we needed him to have a hard number so that we knew whether I would win or not. In the end, he chose five. Uh, <laughs> and so I was the closest because I chose six and it was a minute and 35. A minute and 38. So I mean, I we certainly found out who is the competitive pro athlete among the three of us in that little conversation. It got quite heated. I had to, I nearly had to referee between the two of you. Uh, but hopeless, hopelessly out. No one really saw that coming. But I think we all thought it was too close to call when we were at the start. And it really wasn't too close to call. And I don't want to be down on the Tour de France because it's been absolutely terrific. And it isn't over yet. And Pogacar will come out fighting in some way or another tomorrow. Maybe he'll win the stage over the Col de la Lose. Who knows? Uh, but I think something about the difference between Vingegaard and Pogacar's personality really kind of showed itself today. On the rest day yesterday, Pogacar was playing around in the pool, sitting on uh, inflatables and you know messing around doing backflips and stuff. Jonas Vingegaard was probably just, you know, lying down on a bed thinking about the time trial. There's a real difference between them as as people. Vingegaard has, I'm not saying Pogacar is, you know, a joker or, you know, taking it lightly or just here for a laugh because he certainly isn't. But there's a steeliness to Vingegaard that is just very, very difficult to, you know, just outmaneuver by being lighthearted and fun. Yeah, I think Pogacar's personality is both a blessing and a curse for him because it's a blessing because that's why we all love him because he's such an attacking racer and that's why he's a Tour de France winner because he's not scared to attack and he's not scared to be bold but he needs to learn that he's got to rein it in in the first couple of weeks because we saw this last year and we've seen it again this year now he's getting more and more tired and late into the race and his competitors are just getting stronger. I don't want to labour the point about yesterday's talking point when you said, why not go from a long way out and really lay down the gauntlet for Vingegaard? But actually, maybe that might have been an option. Might have been a good idea, Pogaccia. If you want any tactical advice, just (laughs) listen to the cycling podcast or give me a ring. If you want any tips on who's going to win the stage, maybe don't don't come to (laughs) us, though. (laughs) I mean, it's a good point because what you were essentially saying was you wait, you wait, you wait, you wait in the Tour de France. And yes that is the smart play that's the kind of the obvious play but then something like today happens and all that waiting was for nothing Um, it's it's so easy to ride the race in hindsight though isn't it yeah I think my point was that you I can be criticized for saying why don't you go and do a long attack but we look back at the 2018 Giro stage 19 Chris Room did an 80-kilometer attack, and at the time, everybody said, oh, you know, absolutely crazy, but he pulled it off and he won the Giro. When people make long-range attacks and they work, people say that they're brilliant, and if you suggest them and somebody hasn't done them, people say that you're stupid. And so I think there needs to be this ability to sometimes think outside the box in men's cycling, and men's cycling is is changing, it's becoming more attacking. People are doing things that are off script a lot more often. Um, And, you know, perhaps it's not always best to wait until the time trial day or wait until the high altitude day. You have to take opportunities carefully and calculated at other points in the race. 
in order to, to make the difference. Because if we wait until the last day, well, that's only one day and only one person can do something there. It does feel like that's more what Jonas Vingegaard has done here. He's ridden quite a defensive race. He hasn't really gone for the bonus second, certainly in that first week, like we saw uh, like we saw Pogaccia do on these sort of little, little sprints here and there, day after day. He made that really calculated move on the Marie Blanc that put him into the lead by a big chunk of time. He defended it, and now he's made another calculated move here, and where well, he's he's really gone for this time trial. Um, I, I mean, I'm curious, Lizzie, from from your experience as a rider, what you think someone like Pagaccia making these accelerations day after day, going into the red, going so deep on lots of occasions, but sometimes multiple times in a stage, to just eke out 10 seconds here, a couple of seconds here. Would he be- maybe have been better to to just sit tight and, and put it all into one basket and, and, and go go a bit bigger go you know like you said go 10k out yeah I think so I think so and I think that he needs to rein himself in a bit and I think he needs to really think ahead where are these bonus seconds critical for me and where are they not where am I going to get the right amount of seconds for the right amount of energy and it's a balance it's a real real balance and you have to look at that whole three week race as the balance of energy and like how much energy do you have in the bucket and where can you use each bit of energy but for sure I mean if you're sprinting hell for leather every day in the first two weeks then it's, it's going to get pretty hard in the third week and that's that's what Pagacha looked like at the finish there was this quite strange shot that we were being fed in the press room where Jonas Vingegaard was was in the yellow jersey in like a real small kind of photo booth type thing signing the stage winners medal and like sat directly behind him basically staring at what was down Vingegaard's skin suit maybe um, maybe you looking to see what was <laughs> was, uh, was Pagacha and he just looked so sad he, he, he looked kind of beat and well, and that's not what we're yeah. used to seeing from him. He's always quite jolly. I think that started jolly. on Sunday. I think that started yeah. on Sunday. The momentum shifted, didn't it? I, I was going to say, uh, Vingegaard has said for a few days, or he said it a few days ago, this would be a Tour de France of minutes rather than seconds. And, and it may well be. But also, I do wonder, you know, Pagacha, if he got into the yellow jersey, that would have changed absolutely everything. You know, the fact that Vingegaard kept the yellow jersey by you know, what, a handful, a couple of handfuls of seconds, I think actually turned out to be quite pivotal. It's given him the advantage today of going last. It's just, yeah, we always talk about how the yellow jersey is some kind of burden for the rider and for the team. But actually, in this case, I don't think so at all. I think it's uh, given Vingegaard something to really focus on. And today, well, again, easy to assess the race in hindsight, but it just looks like everything up to this point was about just sitting tight and being careful and then just unleash it in the time trial and that's what he's done Kilometre Zero at the 2023 Tour de France is available for Friends of the Podcast subscribers There's an archive of more than 100 special episodes with new ones released throughout the year. And an annual subscription costs about the same as buying a cup of coffee a month. If you want to, you can pay more. For the first time, you can also sign up with a monthly subscription. So if you just want to see what it's all about, that might be the best option for you. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com and once you've subscribed, you'll get an email with instructions for how to add the feed to your favourite podcast app in just a few clicks. Support the cycling podcast by becoming a friend of the podcast. This is Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, sitting at the back of the back. Bonjour, bonjour. Very often I'm asked the following question. Do you actually work? Do you actually do race radio on a time trial? Well, the answer is yes. And it's actually probably the toughest day of the Tour de France. Uh, it is certainly not a rest day for me. What I normally do is I get into race direction car number two and we follow the first rider. So this morning we followed Michael Morkoff, who was the first man to take off. We go from start to finish. And when I get to the finish, get out of the car, sit down behind a desk with a computer and I give the times of every single rider until the yellow jersey. So imagine when there are... Uh, different uh, splits uh, it can be extremely boring today you had uh, three time checks 
all along the course. So yes, I do work on the uh, time trials and it's not the most pleasant day. The best moment, I guess, of today was eventually interviewing the winner. So quite a busy day for a friend of the podcast, Seb PK. He has to give all of the time checks for all of the riders all day. That's He's got eyes on all day. Well, you say he had a busy day, but I sort of saw him having a having a smoke in the zone technique earlier. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to go and say hello, but I, I wasn't sure that it was him from behind. So I didn't want to didn't want to interrupt his. He's cool, isn't he? He's is a he's a. He's a cool guy. Yeah, Paris. He looks like a Parisian, lost uh, Parisian. Yeah, you, you, <laughs> you suggested he might need a, you know, a, a proper meal. I mean, I, he's sitting in the car all day. I know. I, well, I said, I said, to, I messaged Lionel and I said, is uh, is Seb PK tall and thin? Does he look like he needs a good meal? Because if so, I've got eyes on. <laughs> Talking of good meals. Étape de demain, le dîner d'hier. Tomorrow's stage. Yesterday's dinner. We were in Animas yesterday, Lizzie. Uh, just run through the rest day. It was, was a really relaxing rest day. I dropped Ian Boswell at the airport in Geneva, picked up Richard from the airport in Geneva. I paid the Swiss tax of just setting foot in Switzerland. It cost quite a few <laughs> pounds to go into Switzerland. We had to pay 40 Swiss francs just to drive on the motorway for five minutes. Well, you can drive onto the motorway for the whole year if you like. Oh, that. wonderful, wonderful. I'll come back. Um, <laughs> I had to, I, I got charged a pound to receive a text message to try and get a code to access uh, the internet on my phone. I couldn't access the internet on my phone, so I had to turn on my data roaming. I got charged five pounds for that. A coffee was quite quite expensive. The car park was really quite expensive. Um, a bit of a Swiss tax for us on the rest day, but it all worked out perfectly. I actually had a very relaxing afternoon. I did my laundry. Richard and I then went for dinner in Animas to a restaurant that you had recommended. I think it was called Yatta. Yatta Ramen. Yatta Ramen. And uh, I've talked about this before on the podcast, when you're in France for three weeks, everything being cooked in kind of duck fat, it just it gets a little bit samey and I crave a bit of heat in the food and it was nice to go to somewhere where well there was a, a hint of spice it wasn't as hot as you would get maybe at home in the UK but it was really really good wasn't it Richard it was excellent yeah I mean I, it was most untour like I was I arrived expecting hot evening heavy food sort of digestive onslaught that a tour normally is <laughs> and what I got was actually well, you had really the delicious the salmon you had a yeah. lot of the salmon uh, sort of sashimi, and I, I couldn't have my tataki de saumon. You also had a sake, which was looked really nice, served in a very delicate little wine glass. It was, uh, it was glass. served in a, what we thought it was like forced perspective wine glass, like <laughs> I was playing a giant in a, 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 B-list, a B film, you know. Um, it was sake brewed in the Loire Valley, which I thought would be wow. interesting, a, a rice wine in a wine-growing region in France, which you would not expect. It was entirely forgettable. I mean, I think the last time I had sake was years ago i didn't really know what it was supposed to taste like it was fine it's a it's a rice wine i mean i just stuck with an asahi beer it was very nice it was a great recommendation lizzie um you obviously know us well two weeks into the tour you knew exactly what we needed but what's on the menu for the riders tomorrow stage 17 oh it's this massive is, this is one you know tomorrow. really well yeah this is one that i've uh, reconned in the kilometer zero that i did um just last week, Grand Colombier to Courchevel, so go and check it out um, because, well, the final climb of tomorrow, Col de la Lose, which comes after the Col de Cézis, the Cormé de Roseland, and the Côte de Langefois. Um, the final climb of Col de la Lose is absolutely bonkers. It's basically a bike path over a mountain. I couldn't work out why on earth it was there, and if you'd like to know why, do go and listen to that Kilometre Zero because we bumped into a local guy who knows all about this mad road um, and was actually at the 2020 Tour de France as well and well the final climb is you know nearly 30 kilometers long but really it's about 25 kilometers up to Maribel and then five absolutely brutal kilometers to the top of the 2300 meter Col de la Lose where afterwards there is a short descent short quite dangerous descent actually into the Maribel Alterport um, we'll discuss that in a, in a moment, but the, the difficulty of this climb is the way that it ramps up and flattens out and ramps up and flattens out multiple times over 2,000 metres, and it's a real, yeah, it's a real potential for explosions up there. Oh, you were telling me, Lizzie, earlier that 
it was it, it, it feels like it's been built by road builders who've never ridden a bike before like, absolutely you know when i found out there was a bike path i just said well if this was built for bikes why on earth did they build it like this because it is absolutely savage i mean i'm a professional rider and i struggled to get up it well the last time the tour went there was in well the first time the tour went there as well was in 2020 the the covid tour the lockdown tour miguel Angel lopez won the stage he went from a little bit further out i think from about three kilometers or so but the thing that really stuck in my mind was just how big the time gaps were in those final well 500 meters really looking at the results primoz roglic opened 15 seconds on pogacha in no distance at all now the race isn't quite as finely poised as it was 24 hours ago but still it'll be a really fascinating race for the stage win and who knows you know there could be a bit of shuffling in the gc as well but what about the safety aspect because they're going over the cold lows and then down a similarly steep narrow path to the Courchevel Autoport. They finished at Courchevel in 2005 when Alejandro Valverde won the stage. Now, just a quick plug for the kilometre zero that went out this morning. Uh, Valverde won there in 2005, outsprinted Lance Armstrong, and Armstrong proclaimed Valverde as the future of cycling after that performance. And, well, in a way, he kind of was. Uh, he was in, then embroiled in the Operation Puerto doping scandal. He served a two-year suspension. He came back. He rode on to the age of 42, but the thing that endured most about Valverde was his kind of silence about the sporting and corporate corruption that surrounds sport in Spain. And Matt Rendell, journalist, and uh, he's actually part of ITV's TV coverage of the tour, has written a fascinating book called The Green Bullet about Valverde and his kind of standing and status and legacy in the Spanish sport. And I had a fascinating conversation with him for A Kilometre Zero. That is online now. But this descent down into Courchevel it's caused a bit of consternation. We were talking a few days ago about the difficulty of the Col de Juplan descent, but everyone's been saying, no, that's not the one to worry about. It's stage 17 that's the one to worry about. Absolutely agree. When I rode it, I just thought, this is crazy that this is a final a final descent for a Tour de France stage. Um, and the big risk is if there are any kind of if there's any kind of inclement weather, um, as soon as you get a bit of rain on there, it's very, very dangerous. Like I said, it's a bike path, which means it's very narrow. The turns are very, very sharp. But we saw, as we were waiting for Jonas Vingegaard's press conference, we saw um, some of the safety measures that are already being put in place. Huge uh, airbeds. Airbed-like. Air they, they've got your airbed from, yeah, sort of, from your house. <laughs> <laughs> if they need an extra one, they can give me a call. Huge airbeds um, lined up like dominoes around the side of the corner uh, to protect riders should they should they come off. So it looks like they're, you know, they have taken these safety measures really seriously. But I actually spoke to Mick, Mick Rogers from the UCI this morning because I wanted to know if they had thought ahead because in the case of inclement weather, there could be a serious disaster up there. So Mick, of course, safety is always a priority here at the Tour de France. Of course, that's a priority because it's your job as well. Um, but looking ahead to tomorrow's finish at Col de la Lose, um, I rode this stage actually a couple of weeks ago and um, I think it's quite well known that the descent off the top is very, very tricky. There's a possibility that there may be some thunderstorms tomorrow. Are there any uh, plans in place for, for potential uh, alterations to the stage finish or um, the GC times taken in the event of bad weather tomorrow? I think that's uh, probably uh, the, the question for the commissaires panel. Um, they will, uh, of course, there's the extreme weather protocol that can uh, can be invoked for such situations, but I think it's a decision that uh, they'll be taken on the day and, and, uh, and discussed between the race organiser, the CPA, uh, as per the regulation. But I assume this is something that you've, you know, it's part of the course that you will have looked at ahead of time anyway. We had a lot, quite a lot of meetings uh, with regards to particularly Colour Lows. Uh, so we, we definitely know it's a, it's a, it's a dangerous descent. Uh, hopefully the measures are all in place to, to be able to, uh, to ensure that uh, things are, are done to the best capable we can. Well, that was Mick Rogers, who works for the UCI. He's kind of in the road commission, but also sort of looks after the technical aspects of the UCI's regulations. So everything comes under his remit, really, you know, from sock length and to uh, the bike setups and all of the regulations, but also course 
design and course safety. And I know he works very closely with Adam Hansen of the CPA, the Riders Union, to, to try and put some of these things onto the agenda of the race organisers. And it was interesting, really, that neither Adam Hansen nor Mick Rogers have really kind of gone overboard about uh, saying exactly what is happening but we saw on the french tv show velo club which follows the tour de france stage coverage that they are putting up these airbed type structures to uh, mitigate against the dangers of going down that narrow descent tomorrow they, they said they actually came from alpine skiing they've um, borrowed the airbeds that they usually put on like a super g or a downhill course um, and they've just found a use for them in the summer this was something, uh, a similar thing Jonathan Vorters actually suggested after um, Gino Maida's crash and he suggested using the netting from from, uh, from ski runs because of course it's available. The downside is that it's incredibly expensive um, and of course if you've you know, if you're planning to do that across all descents in the Tour de France, it's just simply not feasible because it's such a huge number of kilometres. But when it comes to a descent like this, um, using those resources from alpine skiing, whether it's netting, whether it's airbeds, seems like a really good idea. It does indeed. Uh, well, we'll send Richard up there tomorrow to go and see what actually happens as they come over the top of the Col de la Lose. I'll stay in the press room and enjoy the buffet. You, you up for that, Richard? I'll have a little nap on the airbed, so like <laughs> the giant airbed. <laughs> well... It's been a bumper episode, but I guess the sense tonight is that the Tour de France has kind of been decided. That doesn't mean that there's nothing to enjoy over the remaining five days because there's plenty to enjoy, uh, but it does feel a little bit like Vingegaard's got one hand or one arm in the final yellow jersey that will be presented in Paris. So we should wrap it up. We need to go back down to Animas and find another ramen restaurant, maybe. Lizzie, it's been fantastic to have you with us for only three days. Uh, it would be great to have you for longer, maybe next year. But Yeah, I'd love to come back. It's been a great experience to see it from the other side. And um, yeah, really, really enjoyed some of the things that, that you don't see as, as a viewer from the outside, like the press conferences, the press buffet, of course. I've uh, got a lovely souvenir from the press buffet today, actually, a Marmot beer from Saint-Gervais, which I didn't steal. I asked if I could take home uh, and they said I could. Um, so yeah, it's been great. Thanks for having me, Lionel. It's been an absolute pleasure. And Richard, welcome, and thank you for a great debut on the Cycling Podcast. And we will see it through to Paris, won't we? Maybe be joined with uh, a few guests along the way. But uh, tomorrow, your job is to go up to the Col de la Lose, come rain or shine, I'm afraid. Can't wait. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney. <laughs>